I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. This week, we're talking a little bit about autism. So I'm just going to hand it over to my guests, and we're going to just do our name, our pronouns, where you're from, your relationship with kids, and your relationship with autism. Hi, my name is Jennifer Malia, and I'm my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I currently live in Virginia Beach. My relationship with kids, um, I have three of them. So I'm a mother of three. Two of them are on the autism spectrum, and I am as well. So um, I got diagnosed when I was 39 years old, and it was on the same day as my daughter. So my son was diagnosed a day. uh, So my, my daughter and I were diagnosed on the same day, and then my son was diagnosed a year later. So we were all diagnosed um, within a short time frame. And my whole family is neurodiverse. So we also have ADHD and OCD in my family. Hello, um, my name is Rose Robbins. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm from Suffolk in the UK, although I currently live in Nottingham, famous for Robin Hood and all those <laughs> all those to- sorts of old English people. My relationship with kids is that I'm a children's book author, um, an illustrator, and I I currently work in a school for children with various different alternative needs. My relationship with autism is that I am autistic, and I have an autistic brother who is more profoundly autistic than I am. So. I was diagnosed when I was 27, I think. And he was diagnosed and he was two. So there's a bit of a difference there. But yeah, that's that's me. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you both for sharing. So I uh, I always sort of ask this starting question uh, because we, we talk a lot about on the podcast sort of about um, the tricky questions that kids uh, ask and sort of times that we might be caught off guard by the things kids ask. And so I'm curious if there's ever been a time where a child asked you a question that you weren't necessarily prepared to answer um, or kind of caught you off guard. And this can be serious. It can be funny. Uh, it doesn't have to be about autism. It can be about anything. So my kids will often ask, you know, where do babies come from? Or, you know, we have my kids were all born close together so they never really experienced um like so they're Mm. right now they are um six seven and eight so (laughs) they're they're basically a little bit more than a year apart and so sometimes I'll just talk about I'll show them pictures of like when I was pregnant with um you know one of them and the other two were really young and you know we don't really get into the details of course but you know I made a comment at one point where I said well you know like you know, at one point you were in my tummy. And then, so they were all like, ew, that's gross. And like, <laughs> it was kind of interesting because it's like, how do you talk about those sort of things? Like they don't really understand what it means, but at the same time, they're so curious to know about it. So I thought that was always a funny question to try to answer, but I think yeah. I was a little unsuccessful with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a classic. There's actually a really 
really good book uh, by Corey Silverberg. It's called What Makes a Baby. And it's a picture book for younger kids. And it's what I love about it is it's like super inclusive. It's just like some bodies have these parts, some bodies have those parts, you need like some bodies have sperm, some bodies have eggs, and you need both of those to make a baby. And sometimes it happens. Some bodies have uteruses, you need one of those too, but they don't all need to be from the same body. And, and that I really love that book for that question, because it's like, it, I don't, it doesn't talk about sex at all, actually. It's just like, you need these different ingredients, uh, and they need a place to kind of cook. <laughs> and, and that's about it. But I, I really, I really like that one for that question, because it doesn't, because um, I think it's actually interesting. We, we did talk about um, sort of like uh, conception. And when I was doing that as a topic, I was like, this is a totally different topic than talking about sex. And we like conflate them a lot. But like, you can totally talk about how to make a baby without talking about sex, um, which I think is kind of a thing that we forget about sometimes. <laughs> I like didn't realize until, you know, until we were sort of doing that as a topic. But yeah, that's definitely, definitely one that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question to think about because I don't, I don't have any kids. So I, I um, only come into contact at the moment anyway, with the, the kids that I work with at the school and um, they are all nonverbal. So <laughs> Mm. I don't get asked a lot of questions from children, but I mean, one example that I can think of that was quite recent was um, at the school that I work at, there's another mainstream school, like right next mm-hmm. to it. It's pretty much the same building almost. And um, one pupil was one of the pupils from, from the school I work in was having a bit of a moment outside and getting quite upset and having a bit of a shout. And uh, this little this little boy, I think he must have been maybe about ten. Was I just noticed that he was sort of standing quite far away and just staring at the scene. And I was like, oh, I better go and talk to talk to him, make sure he's you know he's understanding what's going on um, as much as he can. So I went over, and he was like, "What's wrong with him?" And I was <laughs> like, "Oh well, um, <laughs> he's just a bit upset. He's just a bit upset." Um, but it's fine, you know. Where he's gonna, he's gonna relax, and it'll be all right. And this little boy was just like, "Oh, I see, I see. He has problems." <laughs> and I was like, oh. "Oh boy, <laughs> well, you've got the wrong end of the stick." And I, I mean, I didn't say that to him, but he he sort of wandered off, and I was like, "Okay." I mean, it could have gone worse, but yeah, that that sort of situation for me is is always. I'm never hundred percent sure how to how to deal with those kinds of questions that, you know, it's practice, I, I suppose. Yeah, totally. I, well, I think also like one thing when, when kids are asking questions, at least usually it's out of curiosity. Like yeah. they really want to, to know it's not generally meant to be hurtful. Like I, I used to have a roommate who had cerebral palsy and he moved in. I had three other, three roommates at the time. There were four of us and a, an adult person who like a roommate who was already there asked me because I knew the roommate with cerebral palsy like prior to them moving in asked me what's wrong with him and I'm like you're an adult you know that you shouldn't ask that question like when a kid asks a question like that okay you know they're just like curious they're trying to figure it out but I'm like you're like in your mid-20s you know that you shouldn't ask what's wrong with someone (laughs) oh my gosh but um but yeah I think a lot of times when kids ask those questions I try to remind myself that it's mostly coming from a place of curiosity and not like a place of malice most of the time but yeah it definitely can be tricky to answer those questions that I mean I feel like saying you know they're upset is like a perfectly valid answer because that's what was happening yeah I think it was just the way that he sort of translated that into 
he has, like, problems. has problems. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> we all <you> know. have <laughs> problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he might oh, have been gosh. thinking, oh, problems, like, I have problems like that. I have a bit of a doubt <laughs> sometimes out in public. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it could have gone worse. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about language because I know there's sort of a lot, a lot of different things going on with language around autism. And like, I know personally, right, as someone who um, doesn't have, have autism or like a direct connection with that, you know, I do have sort of a connection with being neurodiverse and disabled and things like that. So I'm sort of in those spheres, but not directly connected to them, if that makes sense. Um, I know that I hear a lot of different language and I'm always like, well, what's the right thing to say? What's the, you know, what's the most up-to-date word? And, you know, obviously a lot of those things can be individual, but I just sort of wanted to talk a little bit about that before we sort of dove in. You know, I feel like there's sort of been a lot of sort of changes to language recently, in, not even just about autism, but in a lot of spheres. And so I'm, I'm curious if like personally you prefer like person first language, like person with autism versus autistic person. And is there like a general consensus on this? Not like the autistic community gets together and has a meeting, but like, you know, is there sort of a general sort of consensus on that? Well, I prefer to use um, identity first language. So I refer mm-hmm. to myself as an autistic person. And even in my children's books that I write, I also try to, if I'm going to use that term, it may or may not come up depending on what, you know, what level the reader might be. I'm still going to try my best to stick with identity first because I, I personally feel that, you know, autism is part of my identity and I can't separate myself from the mm-hmm. autism. It's part of who I am. And I mean, my kids are young enough that, you know, they may feel differently and that'll be up to them once they are you know, um, old enough to decide how they want to identify. But um, I would say that most people that I know in the autistic community prefer identity first language. And I found that with publishers, usually when I talk to them about, you know, my preferences, whether I'm writing a newspaper or a magazine article, because I write a lot of first person essays and that sort of thing, um, they'll often re- like sort of defer to my preferences. And that is not always the case. I had written, I wrote an essay for the New York Times about a Muppet with autism as they, they wanted to, um, you know, <laughs> what a Muppet with autism means to my family was the title of the article. And, you know, I had tried to switch it to autistic Muppet, but, you know, based on sometimes certain publications will have their own sort of diff- like just whether it's preferences or even just the style of the newspaper or magazine, they may decide make that decision and in those cases like I would say I'm not offended by any you know any use of the first the uh, person first language so like if someone prefers you know to use that um, you know and they're referring to themselves I I really don't have any problem with that at all I think it should be a personal choice but um, if someone that's not autistic will you you know uses the um, person first language I'll often start a conversation about it if I can to just let them be Mm -hmm. aware of the fact that you know there's often a lot of people in the autistic community prefer something else and also in the medical community you come across a lot of people that are going to be using um, person first language so it it really just depends on the context but I think a lot of people aren't aware that um, you know autistic people tend to prefer identity first language so it's great to have those kinds of conversations. Now, I think it was interesting for me because I, I feel like I was, I don't, you know, and I, I couldn't tell you who or where, if it was an article or something, but there was definitely a point where I read like, oh, person first language is like, that's the thing we should be doing. And then I spoke with autistic people and they were like, most of us don't, don't do that, Seth. And I was like, oh, like, that's probably the first 
like I probably should have gone there first for, you know, for my inquiries as opposed to, you know, I, I don't know. Again, I can't even tell you what the article was or where I first heard that. But, but I think, you know, I think it's interesting because sometimes we, and of course, right, like I don't want to go to the couple of autistic people in my life and be like, answer all of my questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I try to educate myself as much as I can uh, on my own. But sometimes it is good to just go to, you know, ask, be like, hey, can I ask you a question? Is that okay? Like, what is, you know, what do you prefer? Or, um, you know, what sort of the general consensus, I think it's important to ask people and, you know, from those communities, whatever community we're talking about. And also, uh, like you were, like you were saying, right, like, if someone says, hey, this is what I prefer, just like, respect that. (laughs) Um, Don't argue with people about their preferences. (laughs) I think I'm very much of the same mind as Jen about this, because um, it is definitely from what I've seen, from the community in general there's a preference for identity first language um, Mm -hmm. and I do refer to myself as an autistic person whenever I am referring to myself but it's it's definitely not caught on so much as a thing in the wider society in the UK anyway which I I do think Mm. is is okay you know that it is definitely a personal choice you know how you refer to yourself and how you refer to your neuro diversity I know some people who feel very strongly that identity first language is like one of the most important things that there is because it because it sort of champions autism in in a certain way that I can't quite um, figure out how to explain but um yeah so it's interest it's really interesting I find it really really interesting because I do I do sometimes say things like oh my autism which is different to saying I am autistic but sometimes that Mm -hmm. just feels right to say for me so you know I'm I'm trying to be respectful of people's preference on the whole yeah absolutely I'm a queer person and it reminds me a lot of the ways that people in the queer community sort of choose the labels that feel good to them you know as opposed to like I would never walk up to someone and be like well you date both men and women so therefore you are bisexual right like maybe that person likes the word pansexual maybe that you know maybe they identify with a different word um and I think you know in general it's just a good idea to you know ask people how they identify and what words feel good to them uh as opposed to imposing identities and words on people just a general good rule of thumb yeah absolutely <laughs> another thing that i like I, I went to school for education right my background is in education and definitely when i was taking you know my special education classes and things like that we were taught the terms you know low functioning and high functioning and now um i you know i've sort of heard different people say you know that those are not sort of as widely accepted and one of my my friends who is autistic was telling me that in general or at least they prefer like low support high support and I was curious like if you had there's again like a general consensus about that or um, and again I don't know if it's different in the UK than it is um, over here but I was just curious about that. Yeah, so I definitely prefer to use low support and high support because of, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the reasons you mentioned, but low functioning and high functioning, I think of that as um, on a day-to-day basis, I feel as an autistic person that sometimes I'm, you know, needing more support or, you know, it doesn't stay the same. Like, so I might have more challenges on certain days. And so my support needs might be higher or lower depending. So I actually don't even like the idea of assigning like, okay, so this person is 
low support. Maybe they're not always low support. Maybe they have like a fluctuating need for supports. But I mean, I think it does make sense. Like I refer to my, I can refer to myself as someone who often needs low support. Like I generally, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, um, my normal is that I have low support needs overall and high support needs. Um, you know, some others probably identify as needing high support needs most of the time. But low functioning, high functioning to me, I think that's just just the sound of it. It's like, you know, functioning in what way? I mean, that's just sounds offensive. Yeah, totally. When you're talking about supports, you're talking about more more positive language overall, like saying you need support isn't saying you don't function. So, you know, to me, like just the word support versus functioning is, um, you know, Support is just saying you you need some other things in place to help you, you know, um, achieve your best rather than, you know, the opposite is just saying you're lacking something when you have these, you know, things, something like low functioning. So I definitely refer to like I'll just say too, with my kids, um, they both have low support needs overall, but they have had therapy. And one of my daughter, my daughter is still in speech therapy and had a language delay. But overall, she has low support needs, but her support needs were higher when she was younger and they have sort of decreased over time. And I think um, my, interestingly enough, with my own experience, I think um, as as a child, I was selectively mute, which means that I was only able to communicate easily with close family members and, you know, some some close, you know, basically my circle was pretty small in terms of my communication um, you know, being how much I talk now, that's completely changed over time. Um, and I'm now a, an English professor. So, you know, that's completely different. But the idea of just doing any kind of public speaking when I was a child, that just seemed like a, an impossible thing. So that that has changed. But what has become more difficult for me is that with each decade of my life, I have had more challenges in terms of like, you know, becoming, you know, getting married and having kids and having a lot more people depending on me my executive functioning challenges have changed drastically. Like I have, you know, it was hard for me to take care of myself, but then when I had to take care of other people, it became overwhelming. And so I have higher support needs, you know, with my self-care in that area. But I do think that it's important, I think, to think of it as a range and something that changes from day to day. And also that, um, that it's more, in my in my view, it's more kind to say low support, high support versus um, low functioning or high functioning. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like the I don't know the idea that like well you can't function is just like like you said it's like offensive. It's like not like the language just isn't um, doesn't feel right. And uh, and I also like the idea that like support is something that everyone needs in different amounts. Um, and so I feel like it's also much less othering um, than like well you can't function. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about that, that like who sat down and thought that that was an okay thing to like, I don't know, with some terminology, I'm just like somebody like a room full of people were like, yeah, that sounds good. Rose, what are your feelings about that? Very much in agreement with both of you. I I mean, low functioning. Yeah. Can you imagine somebody say describing like (laughs) you or your loved ones as, oh, that's a low functioning person. It is, it's just unbelievably rude. And uh, yeah, I, I I mean a lot of medical language is just mind boggling mm-hmm. even now. But but yeah, I think high support and low support are definitely definitely preferable. Um I say complex needs quite a lot, but that might be I think quite often that refers to if you have a um 
And this is another fun medical word that sounds really bad, um, but we haven't come up with a, another version of it, which is uh, comorbidities. So mm-hmm. if somebody has additional needs on top of being autistic, then I don't know if everyone calls it a comorbidity, but in the, in, I feel like in the past few years, I've been hearing it a lot more. And it just means, yeah, like I said, something on top of something else, which is, yeah, another interesting area of, of disability is, you know, how everything is kind of connected in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the only other term I can think of, but it like isn't exclusively for like neurodivergence and disabilities and things, it's like maybe intersectional identities. Um, but that covers a much wider, right? It covers ident- other identities like race and gender and sex and, you know, other things. But I, I guess you could say like, you know, intersectional disabilities are different, you know, um, that's the only other word I could really think of that could like cover that. You're right. That's not a, that's not a fun sounding word. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds really sort of um, that's terrible. Mm, it, well, <laughs> I mean, it has morbid yeah. in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. But then, oh then gosh. it kind of makes me think. Oh, it must be a really old word, like an mm-hmm. old-fashioned word taken from the really old language. Yeah. Which I, I, like I, Latiner, I yeah. yeah, yeah. So that part of it, I, I quite find quite appealing in some ways. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one. So um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the term Asperger's. From my understanding that, you know, the term is sort of no longer used and we just sort of say, you know, it's sort of lumped in with like autism spectrum. So correct correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, and uh, I also, you know, a friend of mine who is autistic was, uh, we were having a conversation and they had sent me an article about how also in general, um, you know, the, uh, the term, another sort of reason for not um, using that term is because of the fact that Hans Asperger, the doctor for which Asperger's is named, you know, was a Nazi <laughs> and did some not so great things with uh, children with disabilities and things like that. So I'm curious, you know, if you uh, had heard about that and, um, you know, what your sort of feelings about those things are. And also if that's, if that is accurate, that it's no longer used. So when I was diagnosed at 39, this was only about four years ago, um, I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So again, that word disorder, we're talking about language and that sort of thing. But of course, medical terminology, as we already established, often has different kind of connotations. But um, yeah, Asperger's is something that a lot of people that I know that have kind of similar um, low support needs as I do, you know, have and I. Um, have been diagnosed with Asperger's. And my personal take on it is um, that, yeah, because of the association with the Nazis, of course, that is one reason to not want to use that terminology. But um, my understanding is the DSM, the diagnostic manual that's used to diagnose, was changed to in the fifth edition where they combined Asperger's with pervasive development disorder and classic autism and all of these were sort of combined together into the general like autism spectrum disorder diagnosis and so that you know the full range and you know thinking of it as a spectrum was included in that and I I know that there was actually a lot of um, discussion some people you'll talk to some medical professionals who agree with that and others who think well they're such different there's such a difference between one end of the spectrum and the other that, you know, collapsing that is a problem. Um, my own personal take on it is I think of autism, as I mentioned earlier, as part of my identity. And so the the actual mm-hmm. diagnosis itself, I, I 
think, you know, I identify as being autistic. I don't refer to myself as having Asperger's, but I will often have people question, like if I say I'm autistic, they're going to often not be thinking about, if they are less familiar with autism, they're going to immediately say, oh, you mean Asperger's, because they're probably a lot more familiar with that. And then that's usually where I explain, you know, how, well, actually, you know, more recently, the, you know, Asperger's has been included along with, um, you know, other variations of um, the spectrum into this one category and sort, sort of explain that. But I, I think also there are a lot of people that don't um, necessarily know that background with, you know, the association with the Nazis. And so that's something, too, that I think um, people are a lot less aware of, along with the, I, you know, just the knowledge of the fact that that term is out of use. I believe it is still diagnosed in some countries, though. I'm not sure which mm-hmm. ones, but um, so that is also something to, you know, that causes some confusion when you're interacting with other people on on Twitter and other social media who may be in other countries where that's actually still considered, you know, the diagnosis. Yeah. So I, I personally don't use it. And then, like I said, if someone kind of tries to, you know, because they're more familiar with it, mention it, then I'll just kind of bring up the, the you know, the, the fact that it's now collapsed into this other category. But I, I'm actually very sympathetic to anyone who does, you know, use that term or use high functioning, because to be honest, like my knowledge of autism in general, before I got diagnosed was pretty much nothing. It was Rain Man and that was it. So I knew <laughs> nothing. I thought autism was Rain Man. And so that was my only I had this very stereotypical image of, you know, an autistic person and, you know, none of this that we're talking about today would have even been any, anything that I had known at all. And so I feel like as an advocate, you know, when I'm writing about autism, when I'm talking about it, I feel very, um, very much like I don't want to attack anybody for like using the wrong language or, you know, those kinds of things. So I think that's important to point out that a lot of the stuff we're talking about I think a lot of people don't necessarily come across these conversations so that this is a good one to have that we're talking about here today. Yeah, absolutely. I think I feel really similarly about um, being like a trans person where I have to remind myself sometimes that like, I also didn't know all the terminology and didn't know and didn't even know what the word transgender was until I was in my early 20s, let alone that I was trans, right? So I am... I think that it's important, like you were saying, to, you know, uh, have a little bit of grace um, with, uh, you know, people who maybe don't know, um, you know, all the up to date stuff, because if it's a lot for a lot of different things, if it doesn't directly affect you, uh, maybe you're not going out of your way to research it, um, which, you know, is why why we're here <laughs> to educate. But yeah, I think that that's definitely it's sometimes it's easy to get frustrated when people don't, you know, always know. Uh, everything, but it's it definitely good and humbling to remember that we were all there at one point. <laughs> it's the same in the UK that it it was Asperger's syndrome was diagnosed up until a few years ago, and um, nowadays it's just autism spectrum disorder. I think you can get slightly separate diagnosis here, so you can get atypical autism ASD, mm. which is sort of like they want. They want to diagnose you, but you don't quite you don't quite meet all the um the like criteria. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So actually the clinic that I was diagnosed at was called the Asperger's Service mm. in Nottingham and, and it it was 
I don't think they've changed it yet even, which is quite interesting because, <laughs> uh, I mean, they only diagnose people who would have previously been diagnosed as having Asperger's syndrome. I do think it's it's interesting because I, growing up with an autistic brother, he was very much autistic, autistic. And um, I saw Asperger's syndrome as something that was very, very different. So mm. now that I have this diagnosis that would have been Asperger's syndrome in the past, but is now autism. Yeah, it, it it's it's quite weird. I, I do think it is maybe misguided to lump everything together into this one mm-hmm. thing, because it's very confusing for people who don't know a lot about autism <laughs> yeah um, sure. yeah and uh, <laughs> gives us a little more work on our end <laughs> it does it does um which isn't you know and and for most people there's no reason for them really to go and research it that much it, it's like you were saying about being trans you don't I mean I I'm I know I have trans friends and so I'm reasonably well acquainted with the language and the some of the research around it but mm-hmm. you know if if you don't know anyone or you don't come across it very much I can understand that people could be you know quite ignorant about it without meaning it so yeah absolutely yeah it's just when people kind of work in work in disability and they say stuff like oh autistic people yeah you know they just they're really stubborn they're all really stubborn and and they drive me crazy and think you know people say stuff like that where I work and it's just it's it's quite exhausting sometimes because I I don't really I'm not really open about being autistic at work um Mm. for that reason I uh, do think about sometimes maybe I should be more open about it and maybe people would be more sensitive but I don't Mm. quite feel brave enough yet so I have one more question before we sort of dive into talking to kids and you know I'm, I'm sort of assuming you know with with most things right like whether or not someone with autism identifies as like disabled or neurodiverse um you know as individual and so i'm curious for for you both uh if you're comfortable sharing you know do you identify with either or both of those words and why or why not so yeah i do identify as disabled and it's actually for two reasons because um i have um like a um hypermobility spectrum disorder and it's mm-hmm. sort of similar to ehlers danlos syndrome so mm-hmm. that definitely causes some you know uh that that is for me part of it too, even though it's not necessarily connected to my, to my autism spectrum disorder. I, but I do think that even with my autism, um, and there I am using my autism again, like we <laughs> discussed earlier, um, when I think about the sort of things that create a disability for me, it's really the things that limit. Like I, I think of myself as autism is part of my identity, but there are some limitations I have because I'm autistic too. It's when I think about those things that I identify more as disabled as well. And some of those things might be just, um, I do have autistic meltdowns. I do have um, a lot of difficulty with some situations. I can get easily overwhelmed. And so mm-hmm. when I'm thinking of those things, like when I'm in the middle of, a, I mean, when I'm in the middle of an autistic meltdown, I'm not thinking about anything except you know, <laughs> but what I, when I'm reflecting on the fact that I have them or I'm watching my kids go through them. I don't think of it as just 
autism is part of my identity, but it also um, is the reason that I have some limitations with things. And so for me, that is a disability. The, you know, the mental part of it is very much a part of the, the way I think of it. And when I when I try to talk to someone about like a lot of people will tell me things like one of the stereotypes as well, you know, you don't look autistic. And and then I say, well, what does that even mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Because autism doesn't have a look. But also I think of, um, you know, any of the limitations that I do have you know, with my autism, I have a lot of strengths, I think, because of my autism, but also some weaknesses because of my autism, but it's really um, about 10% of it is all that you can see on the surface. And the other 90% of it is really just what I'm experiencing on, you know, it might even be, you know, because I wasn't diagnosed till I was in my thirties, I had learned a lot of things that I don't necessarily want to do anymore to mask my autism. And so I may have always appeared on the surface as though I wasn't having these struggles where you know, down, uh, you know, I was kind of withholding a lot of things and trying to make better eye contact and trying to um, imitate the way that other women and girls that I saw, you know, were acting. Because I think a lot of times, um, you know, we, we may get into this later about the gender differences that we might see, or um, just, I know that my son and my daughter are different in the way they express, you know, their, their autistic traits. And um, I feel that I, you know, well, I, I, like I said, I guess going back to this, this idea of um, identifying disabled, I definitely do. And I don't know if my kids will as well, but I feel that um, there are times when it's more prevalent than others. But overall, I do feel that I have um, both challenges and strengths with my autism. And I do identify as being disabled because of that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of, because I've only been officially autistic for the last two <laughs> years or so um, sounds like you get a certificate <laughs> yeah I do I have one <laughs> I have a whole report it's very <laughs> yeah I it's a you know I certainly before I had my diagnosis I didn't consider myself disabled even though I like have chronic migraines which is definitely disabling and I'm kind of realizing mm-hmm. now that I I do de- I do I do identify as disabled, but it is kind of a, a product of all of my wonderful conditions that I have, you know, all coming together and working together to produce a disability, <laughs> um, which is yeah the the combination of autism and generalized anxiety and migraines, and it's all it's all a fun sort of thing whereas I I don't think you know if I, I think it's it's impossible to imagine because I am who I am but if it was just autism and I didn't have the headaches or the nervous disposition I don't know if I would consider myself disabled yeah. but that's very it's it's very much a, a personal thing and I think partly it's because of my brother and how how much uh, support he needs every day you know he he has um two to one care like constantly and and because of how much in, how much independence i have i i consider myself to be had always considered myself to be an independent non-disabled person but i'm learning you know i'm still learning all the time like the different kinds of living that people experience so yeah that's a very complicated answer 
from me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, I think it is really easy to fall into like the comparing ourselves to other people. Like I, I know I, I don't, I joke with my wife that I I don't know my wife has um chronic anxiety and depression and uh basically every single one of my best friends in my whole life have had chronic anxiety and I'm like I don't know how I keep attracting all these people you know I was always surrounded by people who had you know pretty um serious things going on and and so I felt like I would sort of minimize you know the things that I had going on and it took me until like the past couple of years to be able to be like no like it's it's not just because someone else has it worse that like I don't have stuff going on too. Um, and also, yeah. like, what does that even mean? You know, it's like a different thing that I'm experiencing. So how can I compare the two of them? But um, and then also sort of going back to what you were saying, Jen, I I think it's this. There's this really interesting idea of like who looks disabled and like what that means and like invisible disabilities. We, um, which like if your uh, listeners, if you're interested in hearing more about that, we you can go back to our we actually did episodes about invisible and visible disabilities. But I think always think that that's very interesting when when someone comes to you and is like you don't look disabled and I'm like what does disabled look like you know because like you were saying disabled can be having chronic migraines disabled can be you know being in a wheelchair but disabled can also be you know having invisible disabilities and things like I have narcolepsy you wouldn't look at me and be like that person has a narcolepsy like right no uh, unless I fell asleep then maybe yeah um <laughs> but uh but you know so I think um I think that whole idea is kind of it's really interesting and just like baffling to me <laughs> that there's a way that autism looks quote unquote or a way that disabled looks and I think that that's a really important kind of stereotype to break down Hey folks, thanks as always for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. So we actually do have an exciting announcement this week, which is uh, we're doing another giveaway. We're all, I feel like we're always doing giveaways lately. Um, but yeah, we have some really great books about autism. So definitely check out our Facebook page and our Instagram uh, for information about how to enter that giveaway. As always, just a reminder to definitely check out a kidsbookabout.com. They have really, really great books about all of the kinds of topics that we talk about. Really stellar for starting conversations about those kinds of things. Uh, so again, that's a kidsbookabout.com. And if you use the code RADCHILD on checkout, you will get $5 off. So it's a win-win situation. You get a great book and you get money off. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our lovely podcasting network. So definitely check out the Upford Network. You can do that by going to www upfordnetwork.com. Uh, I'm actually on another show on the Upford Network, uh, very different than this show. It's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Natural Toonie. So if you happen to like Dungeons and Dragons, definitely check that out. There's also lots of different podcasts on there about all different kinds of things. The common thread just being that, you know, the Upford Network is all about creating kind of diverse content and, uh, you know, a lot of our stuff is like social justice themed and things like that. Um, so definitely check us out. And uh, yeah, other than that it's just our usual stuff so if you would like to find us on the internet you can do so by going to www.radchildpodcast.com or you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at radchildpodcast it's pretty easy to remember because everything is just radchildpodcast i try to make it as simple as possible um speaking of things that are just radchildpodcast if you would like to email us you can do so by emailing 
bradchildpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to contact us via our website, you can also do that. Again, our website is www.bradchildpodcast.com. And you can just head right over to that contact us section. There's a little form on our website that will get right to us. Uh, There's also information about how to be a guest on the contact us section. There's a link to a little form you can fill out. Um, It's pretty quick. Uh, Just tells us a little bit about you and uh, what topics you might be interested in uh, talking about. So yeah, we're always looking for guests. So definitely check that out. Of course, uh, we appreciate any way that you support us, whether that is um, sharing our content with your friends, talking about us, um, rating and reviewing us, which we would love if you could do. And of course, you can also support us financially. Uh, If you're interested in doing that, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash radchildpodcast and you can join the ranks of the wonderful Emma, Alex, Sarah, and Kai uh, in giving us a monthly contribution. Uh, It could be as little as a dollar. Honestly, everything helps. Like I always say, this is a passion project of mine. Uh, I am not making any money off of it. I am spending a lot of money on it. (laughs) So any money, uh, any way that you can contribute financially really, really helps me, even if it's a dollar a month. That's a dollar less that comes out of my pocket. So yeah, definitely check that out at www.patreon.com forward slash radchildpodcast. And as I mentioned before, it really helps us out if you can rate and review us um, on the podcatcher of your choice or on our Facebook page. Um, just, you know, so that people can look at that rating and say, hey, like other people like this, it's probably decent content um, and can assure them uh, that we're doing good work. Um, so that really helps us out. Uh, other than that, that's about it. So I'm going to hand it over to Crystal and Rebecca and then we'll get back to the show. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. So, sort of jumping into talking to kids and it's you know, sort of most basic form of a kid just walk up to you and said, hey, what's autism? How could you answer that question in sort of a kid-friendly way? I usually start by saying it's having a differently wired brain. And I think that can also be, that's pretty, like, that broadly could be referring to also ADHD and, you know, some other, just anything on the neurodiversity, like being neurodiverse, I think of as having, you know, differently, a differently wired brain. And what I talk about, too, like um, from talking to my kids um, about autism, I'll, I'll talk about it as being different, but not less. So meaning that you have challenges, maybe with, you know, with autism, but that doesn't make you, you know, you're still someone who has a lot of potential. And I try to kind of turn it on a positive that you do think you might do things differently, but that doesn't mean you don't do them. It's that you do them a different way or you experience the world with a different lens. And um, I think that that um, is 
usually as a children's book author, I have to find really creative ways of kind of making it interesting when I'm, you know, showing the viewpoint of a character who's autistic and what they see, you know, in their, their, um, you know, being a seven-year-old and trying to explain, you know, what it feels like to have these, um, you know, just, just be looking at the world through an autistic lens. And sort of think about those, those terms and, you know, what, what we would say, it's kind of uh, just the way that I describe things to my kids in any way, really, um, because there's so many things that they don't understand or have questions about. We were talking about, you know, where do babies come from earlier, but this is a way to talk about it by sort of saying things are different, but different and make, making sure that different is not perceived as bad. It's like, well, here's an example of how you know, I do this differently. Like I like to, you know, some of my kids like to count things before they start using them. And that's just part of, you know, the way they do it differently. Other kids may not care less how many objects are in front of them. But, you know, sometimes my daughter has to count how many are there before she's willing to do anything, anything else with them. And so there are just differences. And I think that um, the best way to approach a question like what is autism is not to describe it in a way where you're focusing on the negative, because I think that is pretty much what we get a lot, whether, you know, you see it's when I say that we see that a lot, I guess you could say just like media portrayals often focus on the negative. And so if we focus more on the positives and how it's more of a balance, then I think that is um, a good way to frame it. Yeah. I think what you were talking about the idea that like different isn't bad is I I love that because I think about this a lot like in in children's books where I think there's sort of two kind of mindsets and one is like you know one is that it's oh you know it's okay to be different and one is like you're just like everybody else and I you know I grew up um I have many intersectional identities and disabilities and I also have ADHD and which is what I was uh, diagnosed with the the youngest. I was in the first grade and I grew up with my parents very well intentioned being like, you can do anything anybody else can do. Uh, And like, no, I can't, you know, it took me until I was an adult to be like, I actually can't do everything everyone else can do. I can't do it in the same way. Um, And so I sort of like shifting that narrative instead of being like, you you're the same as everybody else or you can do everything that everyone else can do to being like it's okay that we're all different right and we might have different abilities and we might have different you know things um and there's actually i don't know if either uh y'all are familiar with this book but there's a book that um i personally like called just ask by sonia sotomayor that's basically about uh kids with all different um varying abilities um and that's sort of it sort of relates it to a garden it's like a bunch of kids in a garden and it's sort of saying like you know it would be boring right if there were only one kind of flower uh in the garden and um so relating our differences to sort of a a garden with all different kinds of flowers in it um which i really i really like that book and it's it's funny because it talks about all different kinds of disabilities and things but um my wife has a um a peanut allergy and she likes it because it talks about allergies she's like books never talk about allergies Funnily enough, no, I don't think I've ever actually been directly asked that question by a child. But I, I did do a workshop one one time at a book book thing, and um, mm-hmm. I sort of read my book and talked a bit about my book in front of this audience of quite quite small children. And um, after the after the workshop, I asked some of the people who were helping me, and I was like, "How do you think that went?" Um, you know, do you think it made any sense? And one of the people was like, well, you know, I mean, you use the word autism and I don't think children understand that word. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, you're probably actually, you're probably right, actually. What does that <laughs> word mean to to young children? Because I don't, I, it, it really depends on the age and the mm-hmm. development of the individual child. Like, because if you say something like, oh, it's a differently, a differently wired brain, which I think is a really nice nice description but if you said that to a child who didn't know what a brain was yeah, exactly. they might be a bit like they need to have some sort of frame of reference yeah yeah so I guess if I was to put it in the super super simple way I would say that they were a person who who thinks differently or who behaves differently or it's it's very much focused on the word different which is a good word like Jen was saying that it's it's different, but not less. Mm-hmm. There is a big focus on in the dis- in even children's books and books about disability on focusing on what a person lacks and how that defines them and their disability mm-hmm. and their neurodiversity or whatever. And so, trying to find a way. I mean, with with this sort of question, my brain just goes like, "What's the context?" We always talk about on uh, on this podcast. We often talk about right, like answering a question with a question of like, hey, like, what do you already know about that? Or like, why are you asking that question? Or, um, you know, because to get a little context for uh, how to answer the question, I think that's not, it's not a bad answer. It's like, why are you asking me this question? Right? <laughs> to kind of get some context and make sure that you're answering mm-hmm. the correct question and giving them the information they want and not the information they, you know, already have or um, things like that. So I think that that's actually a really valid answer. <laughs> throw it right back at them. (laughs) We talk about a lot too, just like making sure that you know what kids are actually asking. Cause sometimes, you know, I'm I'm thinking of a time where one of my friends, their kids asked them if uh, I'm trying to remember how they phrased it. If a woman could be a male person and their, the parent went into like detail about trans people and all that. And, and the kid just like stopped them halfway through and was like, "I, I mean, like, can they carry the male? Like, can they deliver the mail? Like a postal worker, you know? Um, so making sure that we kind of know what kids are asking, I think it's really important because sometimes, uh, you know, that could trip you up, the wording. If that had been um, a tweet, if that kid had been tweeting, it would have been a lot clearer. I know we talked about it a little bit, but like what are, you know, some kind of common behaviors a kid with autism might display? Well, obviously acknowledging that like everyone's experience is different. But yeah, for people who like might not be familiar Yeah, I think this is a great question, and it's actually a really hard one to answer because common behaviors, like I already mentioned earlier that I had very little knowledge of, um, you know, autism at all before I got diagnosed. And so the common sort of stereotypical ones that I think everybody thinks of are like rocking back and forth and not making eye contact, you know, being um, not socializing, you know, kind of those those things are immediately what a lot of people think of. And um, I think one thing that's important to mention with this too is that girls and women tend to be underdiagnosed with autism mm-hmm. spectrum disorder. Um, the C- CDC statistic is that for every one um, girl diagnosed with autism, four boys are diagnosed. Oh wow! And so, and that's often a lot because of masking. And what I mean by masking is that a lot of times, um, you know, especially me and even my daughter, like we are we act differently in public than we often do in private because we often imitate the way that other people act and whether or not we're aware of it. Um, there's a lot of things that I think are 
you know, just over time, even though now I may care less about doing that, I don't want to be hiding my autism. I talk publicly about being autistic. It's just that something I always felt different as a child. And even though I didn't know what it was, I was always trying to hide that difference. And so that was just something that I think um, makes it harder to identify these different common traits. And I will say also that my kids had a very different experience get diagnosed because of this. When my daughter and I went and I I had um, done a lot of research and I came to the conclusion that I was on the autism spectrum and that my daughter was too, and I was trying to figure out what was going on with her language delay and the other behaviors that I was seeing. And when I came across autism spectrum disorder, I had spent hundreds of hours looking into it. I knew that she was autistic. I knew that I was autistic. And then it was a matter of trying to find someone who believed me. And um, the experience was difficult. We went from, you know, her pediatrician, we got referred to a developmental pediatrician and everyone was like, well, there's a language problem, but she's, you know, making good eye contact. And, you know, she was behaving so differently, you know, very well behaved when we would go to see these appointments. And within that 15 minutes, nobody really thought anything was looking autistic to them because again, autistic look like, right? But then, um, so, you know, I finally found a clinical psychologist who diagnosed both of us on the same day. It was aware of, you know, how um, over time he was able to see with um, different appointments, um, more of the behaviors kind of, some of these behaviors are more subtle, but um, a lot of times it's just little things like um, my kids, uh, they have difficulty with accepting compliments or giving compliments. Um, my son will like turn his t-shirt around if you compliment it because he doesn't want you to see it after that. Um, it's just little things like um, they run a lot when they're excited and you would think, oh, how is that unusual? Kids run when they're excited. But I mean, it's it's really like running around. They can't stop no matter what. It's like you can't get them to stop you know, running when it's not appropriate to be running and things like that because they're just so excited and they spin a lot. Um, so they do a lot of, you know, skimming. They have certain routines that they don't want to deviate from. So sometimes it's like, well, we, we, we have to go to school now. We have to stop playing. It's time for school or, or you know, or the opposite. It's like it's it's time to switch from this activity to another activity. Or if we say, oh, well, we're going to go to the movies. But then, you know, for some reason we can't go to the movies. And it's like yeah. that, that change in the routine is enough to get them really upset. Now, with, with COVID right now, we're not going to the movies. Um, <laughs> but basically, any kind of change or deviation in activities that are expected, um, a lot of those things will, you know, set my kids off. But that's what you observe over time. And so what mm. I think of is a lot of those, you know, think about 10% of it's what you see and the, the rest of it might be more experienced. Um, like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of it yeah. what's going on, you know, within, you know, within someone's, um, you know, as an autistic person, I think I can see, like, I start to sense that my kids are feeling things like sensory things might be bothering them, like bright mm-hmm. lights and noises and things like that. And it's just because I can kind of, I start to see a, a sort of pattern in the way that they, they uh, behave. It's almost like they're shading their eyes and then I'll go turn the light off. And then maybe they are, um, you know, they might not even be covering their ears, but I can tell they're kind of cringing and I'm like, oh, there's some noise. Let me let me shut the door or let me close the blinds and stuff like that. It's just like you can almost sense the things that are bothering mm-hmm. them. And so I think of it as the common things are actually the ones that are probably going to like mislead you in a lot of places unless someone has like a more severe form of autism. 
Because the confidence we think of, my daughter does not rock back and forth. She does make good eye contact for the most part. Um, My son, when he, when he went in for his diagnosis um, a year after my daughter and I already had one, he had the family history in his favor, you know, to get diagnosed. It was something that they were, you know, more willing to consider at that point, knowing that it was already established in the family. But also um, when he went in, his eye contact wasn't as good and he was, um, he was not rocking back and forth, but he was afraid of the, the clinical psychologist. And so he would kind of like, you know, he was moving back on the couch and he wouldn't go near him. But then yeah. when he brought out something and changed it so that he messed up like this, um, this little maze, he like messed it up so that my son was just like dying to fix it because he saw how it got out of order. He was like, le- you know, leaning over the couch with his hand trying to like fix it just so he could make it the right way. You know, in his mind, it was more important to get it the right way. He still didn't want to go near him. So it was just all these little subtle things. And he knew how to tease those out to see them. But I think a lot of times with kids that have lower support needs, it's harder to see it necessarily. And then when they're back home, they might have more of the autistic meltdowns in private. Yeah. Um, You know, so it's harder to sort of sense it. And, And that's, I think, a lot of the reason why there's a lot of people who say, well, you don't look autistic. And it looks like you're getting through your day just fine. So like, how are you able to do all these things if you're autistic and they kind of expect you to not be able to socialize with other people they expect you not to be able to control any movements that you might have that you know make you feel more comfortable I mean rocking and and jumping and spinning those are stems that just like make you feel like at least for me um I flick my fingers I do stuff since we're not on a video I'm flicking my fingers right now sometimes but if we were on a video I mean it's just those kind of ingrained things that I'm over time I've like I've become aware of when people are watching me, but when people aren't watching me, I'm doing a lot of these more typical autistic things that we think of when I'm skimming. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, cu- I'm also curious because you mentioned like the family history aspect is, uh, is autism hereditary? Is there like hereditary link? There's a strong genetic component. I wrote a, um, an essay for the New York Times um, about my daughter and I being diagnosed with autism on the same day. That was basically the title. And um, it got it. It was a reported piece. And we talked, um, I, you know, I referred to some studies in that piece. Um, it's not that there's there's more and more evidence that's coming to point to the, um, that there's a high genetic, it's, it's not where, and and actually what's interesting too, is the more and more people I talk to, even if there isn't someone else in the family that's diagnosed, they usually know someone else who has autistic traits and probably might be if they pursued a diagnosis. So there tends to be a lot of, um, there's a big genetic component but it's not that you can't, you know, have, and sometimes it's not necessarily closer family members, but, um, you know, it could be a little bit more distant in the, you know, within the genetic line. But the, the research that's coming out is um, it's newer studies, but some of them have been larger studies and it's something to look, I guess, look into more. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's something that I didn't know. I was thinking about this earlier and I know, I know quite a lot of autistic people. And the only thing I can think of that everybody had in common was very specific interests and quite being quite heavily invested in those interests. So, yeah, I, it's not something that you'd notice necessarily straight away, but you might notice it quite quickly if you talk to somebody who's autistic for 
any particular length of time that they might mention something that seems fairly out of place in that conversation. You'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> why? Don't know why you're you're talking about like the bus system in uh, <laughs> East Nottingham, but you know, I'm sure that's that's relevant to our conversation about house flats. <laughs> so really, I mean, that's not so much a behaviour, but a tendency. I guess it, I guess that is a behaviour as well. Yeah, I mean, I have all sorts of specific interests, and I am resisting talking about those right now, <laughs> which is is really for the best for everyone for all your listeners. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean, eye contact is something that I've noticed in 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 various forms is 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 more common. But d- yeah, it's not. It's definitely not not all autistic people experience that mm-hmm. sensitivity because there's there's hypersensitivity but there's also hyposensitivity so being less sensitive to stimulus is mm. one variation which is quite oh, that's interesting. really interesting yeah yeah I didn't know that one yeah it's 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 definitely more common to be hypersensitive I think mm-hmm. I have come across people who you know seek out more intense light or more intense loud noise because Hmm. they want that feedback like I guess my brother is a little bit like that but it's different in different for different things so for sound and for light might be hypersensitive to sound and it's interesting because like sometimes the things that you think are the most obvious like like the sensory sensitivity you know and you were saying like it can it can be opposite sometimes I I found that out like I was saying I have ADHD and when people think of ADHD often the first thing they think of is an inability to focus but also hyper focus can be you know as sort of I don't want to say symptom uh, an attribute of someone with ADHD like my best friend uh, got diagnosed um, when she was we you know we knew each other basically our whole lives and I never would have said that she had ADHD because she could hyper focus on stuff and for me ADHD meant not being able to focus right um and she was diagnosed later later in life uh, and that's when I found out that that was actually an attribute so it's interesting sometimes how these sort of like stereotypical ideas that we have about about things it can also be the, the opposite of that sort of talking a little bit about like educating and maybe like being you know for an educator or a classroom teacher or someone like that you know what are some things that we can sort of do to make spaces more accessible for autistic folks maybe spaces uh, that aren't uh, exclusively for autistic folks you know the classroom or things like that yeah I think that's a great question because um, one of the things I think about is a lot of times when I come up with things that might make you know either me more comfortable or my kids more comfortable in classrooms a lot of the best practices for autistic people are often the best practices for all people everyone yeah in a lot of ways it's kind of like just make the spaces you know just more flexible in general and I know like I have a lot of sensory issues too I mentioned how some of my kids do but like when I was a kid um I mean I had trouble walking on like um just uh tiled floors I didn't like my feet touching any hard surfaces so even as an adult I'm still wearing slippers like foam added slippers to walk around in my own house on hardwood floors and things like that. And so, and that, that carries over with a lot of other things too. I just, I'm really uncomfortable in um, small spaces and, you know, I'm claustrophobic. I mean, there's just like a lot of things that I think, um, you know, it can be done. Um, I'm actually, I have some auditory processing difficulty. So mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. We're on a podcast right now, but I'm doing pretty good, I think, so far being able to interpret everything, knowing what questions are coming up. But sometimes I do have difficulty, like if I'm 
know, if I'm in a classroom and I know as a kid, when I was in a classroom, I had trouble if, if I was just being talked to the whole time with no visual um, mm-hmm. you know, support. And I'm much better with things if I do them hands on. I have a lot of trouble if someone just explains it to me and then expects me to go and, and mm-hmm. do that thing that was just explained. I think in a lot of ways we have learners that are, you know, it's just best practices for everyone to have a lot of different ways in which we, you know, we teach. And even as a, you know, as an English professor, I teach adults, but I teach a lot of, um, I teach a lot of uh, future educators. So English majors who are getting their secondary ed certification and those sorts of things. So we do talk about things like, you know, what would be making more spaces more accessible, but I guess my my thought is if it's a more flexible situation, it's going to be you know good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's generally true for making spaces more um, more inclusive and just more accessible. I guess um, there's another word that's on the tip of my tongue, but I'm probably going to remember it in like you know a week and be mad. You know, from the get go too. Like as an educator, like this is something that you know. I was lucky to learn about in school was like the difference between adapting, like saying like, Oh, I have an autistic child in my classroom. Now I need to make changes. And just like from the get go, making changes and making things accessible to everyone. So that regardless who's in your classroom or who you're teaching, you know, it's going to be accessible. Uh, And I think like you were saying, those changes really help everyone generally sort of regardless of who you're, who you're talking about or what those access needs are. I'm also, I was also thinking about like, I have a lot of friends who are autistic friends with ADHD and different things who use fidgets a lot, like, or like to doodle or things like that, like need to be doing something with their hands. I remember being in school and like, we were absolutely not having, not allowed to have anything in our hands or like I would be in art class and I like to listen to music it really helped me focus because I had ADHD and if I could hear what was going on it would distract me and I wasn't allowed to listen to music in class right so like these kinds of things that you know accommodations that can be made where it's like it's as long as you know you're still if it's helping you pay attention then like great play with a zipper like whatever you know or listen to music right in art class and I think that those kinds of um, sometimes the sort of old school rules about like, well, you can't have technology in school. It's never helpful. Or you can't, uh, you know, have something in your hands. It's never helpful. Um, don't really apply to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a, a doodler in high school as well, I think in primary school. And I, my notebooks were just unbelievable. <laughs> it was like constantly doodling instead of, instead of taking notes a lot, because I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate. <laughs> yeah. And, School was just pretty, pretty awful for me, to be honest, because there was so much going on at once. And I think one of the more important things that teachers can do um, to ensure that their autistic students are getting the most they can out of school is to just be, to be aware and to be, to try to be sensitive to, to the varying needs, um, which I'm sure that most teachers are. I think there's an interesting thing that happened recently I don't think it's been happening much lately because of COVID-19 and everything but last year we would have once a month not all of the shops but most shops in the UK would have an hours like an hours autism friendly time and it was amazing it was like the they would turn the music down in the shops they would turn the lights down and you could just wander around and it would be so much That's quieter. Awesome. It was it was so good. I loved it because like those things drive me crazy. I can't even go into like Urban Outfitters or I 
you might not have that shop. We do. Oh, okay. We do, yeah. <laughs> you might know what I'm talking about then because they play music so loudly for me anyway. <laughs> and I could only be in there for about five minutes before having to, to just leave because it's so yeah. much. Now, in school, I mean, it varies for everyone. Like, I don't like loads of music, um, loud music when I'm just going about or whatever but for like you were saying it helps you concentrate and filter out all those other noises of people like with their pens mm -hmm. and or chatting or whatever so <laughs> yeah it's just being aware and being sensitive to to pupils and what they might what they might need yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like in a lot of situations, I think it can be really easy to do. Like, I don't know why this is true, but I, I find that in a lot of queer spaces, like things just tend to be more accessible. I don't, there's a really big intersectionality between the queer community and the uh, disability community. I'm not sure why that is. Um, and just in general, like there's a lot of neurodivergence and things like that. And so I took a, a dance class that was exclusively for queer people um, here in Montreal. There, you know, there was someone who had a light sensitivity and just, you know, the teacher would always be like, hey, like, tell me whatever your needs are like if you can't do something like it's fine like go sit out if you you know need to go like lay down for a minute if you just want to sit and like not participate if you need to modify something but there was someone who had um light sensitivity and like it literally bothered no one in the class that we had to turn the lights down you know what I mean like no one was like oh it's not bright enough in here you know like it was fine and uh and that person like got what they needed and I think so I think also creating a space and it's you know it's different when you're working with adults than students obviously because adults have a little bit more autonomy um to you know and know that they can state their needs um whereas kids sometimes may not have learned yet that you know they can state what they need but um I think that you know also creating an environment where kids and people can feel comfortable to state their needs too and in different ways right because not everybody might be able to go up to you and tell you that so sort of thinking about different ways that we can understand uh, people's needs as well I think is important so like in those circumstances where you know I might be you know an adult with a child you know who is not autistic and they might you know see a kid uh, maybe flapping or using sensory items or not making eye contact or doing those kinds of things we were talking about right and you know if that kid points it out like hey what are they doing or like what you know sort of like what you were talking about earlier Rose you know how can we kind of re respond to that and you know as the adult in that situation so I like to think of it as um, trying to make a connection. So like if a, if a kid sees a, another, like let's say a child sees an autistic child flapping, um, I'll, you know, I might explain, well, usually, you know, flapping um, might mean that they're excited. And what do you do when you're excited? And I like to do this when I'm excited. And so, you know, maybe he likes to do that when he's excited. And so it's kind of like trying to... Um, make a connection with it. So like I, I, you know, actually in my, my children's book that's on sensory issues, there's a, there's a stress ball that the main character uses and she, she squeezes her stress ball at school. And I think that was, we were talking a little bit about fidgets earlier, just these kind of sensory items. I think a lot of kids have some things that whether or not they're autistic, they may have um, fidget spinners or they may know if you can kind of make a connection and say, well, you know, this is something that I like to do. What do you like to do? And, and it's, so it's not like you're normalizing it. It's not like something different so much as well. That's kind of similar to something I like to do. And the one with um, not making eye contact. Well, I, I tell, you know, people all the time that um, 
I'm more comfortable looking at people's mouths. Like I'll look at a mouth instead of eyes because that makes me more comfortable. And so I have a hard time thinking about what I'm trying to say if I'm looking directly at someone's eyes. And so I come up with other ways to, you know, and I have even my main character does that too, because it's just something that's different. But other people may be completely comfortable with making eye contact. But I would say there's a lot of people that when they're trying to talk about something complex, you'll see people that aren't even neurodiverse kind of looking at the ceiling or like searching for answers somewhere. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's different, you know, everyone does it differently, but it's not like if you kind of normalize it in a way where, where you say something like I do, you know, I do this when I'm thinking about something, what do you do when you, when you're really thinking really hard and I think if we can kind of normalize those um, stimming, uh, these are stimming and kinds of just things that people do to feel more comfortable, um, that it would be better, you know, for kids to understand that it is a difference, like we were talking about earlier, rather than being, um, you know, being less or being a bad thing. Yeah, I really like that idea of making that connection. Like we were talking about earlier, I think that it's just kind of like in, in human nature to like want to connect um, and make a connection with like, oh, they you know, when you're feeling this way, like you do this when I like, I feel that way too, but I, you know, the output is different, right? Like I might react differently. Um, and I think that that's, you know, even when we're talking about other things, right? When we're talking about emotions, for example, like when someone gets mad, you know, they might scream versus someone else who gets mad, they might cry or they might go want to be alone or right. Like we have, I think it's, great to make those connections about all different kinds of things um, where we're, we might be having a similar experience, but express ourselves in a different way or utilize something different. So I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I was working in a class recently and the teacher in this class was, was really fantastic because she had a class of six people, so they were all so different. And mm -hmm. I would just remember her very kind of calmly and, it was just so it was soothing almost the way that she said it. it was it was like talking to a student that was obviously a little bit kind of nervous about this other student who was just shouting like there wasn't any sort of reason um but they were just they were just vocalizing and this student was like looking a bit nervous and being like putting his hands on his ears and being like oh you know and the teacher was just like oh it's okay that's just so-and-so's way of talking to us. That's just their, that's their voice. That's how they use their voice. And they're just talking to us. That's how he's saying hello to us. And it just completely calmed down this other student. And it was, mm. this, this was a diverse class. But mm. I, can, I can see that sort of thing happening quite a lot. It's, it's often, it's just a matter of reassuring mm -hmm. children that, you know, it's okay what's going on. It's, it's you're safe we're all safe and this is this is fine and some people communicate in a slightly different way to you or me and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that it's something to be afraid of I suppose yeah I think I think that's really important I, I nanny a uh, set of twins who are two and a half uh, even with them like a lot of times you know when 
Arthur is very, um, you know, just like sensitive, like uh, Nora is like a bruiser. <laughs> she can, anything is fine with her. She'll like fall over. She's fine. But for Arthur, you know, something uh, that maybe won't, wouldn't bother Nora would happen and it will bother him and he gets very upset. That's the first thing I always say is like, you're safe. Like you're, you know, and I think like reassuring kids that like they are safe and it's going to be not, not in a way that's not like everything's fine, like to dismiss their feelings, but mm. you know, that it's going to be okay. And like, you're, you know, like you've got people with you for support and you're safe and I think reminding kids of those things while still validating what they're feeling is is definitely useful so I just have one more question before we kind of wrap things up and that is you know if there is one thing that you could tell people about folks with autism or sort of one stereotype about autism that you could dismantle what would it be the one that I come across I mentioned one earlier which is um that uh when I said that four boys are diagnosed for one girl a big sort of stereotype is that a lot of people think that Autism is a, a male disorder. That it's something that you know we don't think of uh, an autistic girl necessarily. We think about a lot of people, I should say, think about Rain Man like I did before I got diagnosed. <laughs> and so I think that is a, that is the one that I think would be um, it would help a lot of girls and women get diagnosed and people that are non-binary and just across the whole gender spectrum as well because. It's just there's there tends to be I think we kind of touched on this a little earlier, but there's a lot of um yeah, I think there's a lot of ways in which masking can make it difficult for someone to be, you know, accepted as being on the autism spectrum because if you don't look autistic, so I'm really combining two stereotypes into one here, but if you don't look autistic, you may not get diagnosed, which means you may not get the support needs you need and and so it kind of all these stereotypes really do fit on into this idea of it not being not being accepted as being on the autism spectrum, too. But I would say for me, the big one is that, you know, all you know, all kinds of people may be on the autism spectrum and you don't know. Don't assume that, you know, because you think you know what autism is. You may not be able to see autism it's not something that you see on the surface. It's something that someone experiences and you should believe someone, as I said. And, and so that I think that all those really get together. I kind of just brought them all together. But uh, <laughs> but they, they all sort of do feed off of each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you talking about, you know, believing someone when they you know, say they're autistic or, you know, I, it, it just makes me think a lot, you know, obviously just in, in general, right. If someone's saying like, Hey, I'm experiencing this thing or, you know, I have this thing, right. We should just believe people, but it makes me think a lot about like you were talking about your experience with doctors not believing you. Um, and I think that that happens a lot in the medical system with different things. My sort of uh, unsolicited advice <laughs> from going through this in the medical system myself is like, if a doctor doesn't believe you, like find a different doctor. Like you were saying before, like find someone who does believe you, because I, you know, I think unfortunately that does happen a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I did also have a similar experience with doctors. Mm. So I, I had a a doctor who I, I basically brought them the case of, I think I might be autistic. Could I maybe get a referral for an assessment? And they were like, no, I don't think you need to do that. You'll be fine. <laughs> you know whatever oh and I was like okay fine I'm probably wrong you're a doctor oh. and then uh seven years later I was like actually I'm gonna try this again and I'm gonna ask another doctor and this doctor was like yeah 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 <laughs> you know I'll get you the referral form and we'll just see you know because it you, you might be and that might be helpful if you knew 
Uh, so two very different experiences and it's yeah. it's really important to well do your research but also you know trust how you feel in your body about yeah who you are. yeah doctors can be great but not yeah not, not always right <laughs> just like anyone else in any other profession right like like Jen was saying too it's like they see you for 15 minutes and then they're supposed to like know everything about you like you know like I know um, yeah definitely go with your gut about that stuff I had a similar this is like totally a tangent but I had a similar experience with a therapist where I was like this is before I transitioned I was like so I feel like uh, a girl stuck in a boy's body and his answer was that's interesting and then we moved on and we never talked about it again and after after I yeah and after I had transitioned I came back I literally came back to that therapist I got an appointment with him just to be like if anyone ever says that again they are probably trans like (laughs) please don't say that's interesting and move on um but it's like we have this such trust a lot of times in doctors and professionals and and you know we have to trust ourselves too sometimes but anyway I totally went on a tangent Mm. oh my gosh yeah I feel Um, like that was more of a a um, stereotype about the medical profession. <laughs> I just I couldn't resist telling that story. I guess because it's it's been true for so many people, especially mm-hmm. women, don't get believed. It's, it's yep. really bizarre. But there you go. I mean, it's not that bizarre anymore. But if I could quickly squeeze in a stereotype about autistic people, mm-hmm. um, it's just that I think. Well, it's building on what you've what Jen has been saying about that then there is no typically autistic person mm-hmm. um, although it is something that's assessed and measured in certain ways there is no autistic people are as as diverse and varied as non-autistic people and mm-hmm. any sort of stereotypes that we see are usually constructed from a wider lack of understanding of society yeah yeah I mean that's that's how I would feel about it there's there are so many misconceptions so uh just sort of wrapping things up aside from your own work which we'll get to in a minute I'm curious if you have any resources about you know autism for uh kids or adults it could be like children's books or tv shows websites really any anything you can think of yeah I think this is um a great question and I I um I feel that there's a lot less sort of picture books that are written specifically by Own Voices authors. And so I'd like to highlight a couple of Own Voices autistic authors who write for young people, um, specifically the picture book audience, because there are, you know, um, it's easy if you Google like middle grade and young adult to find them. It's a lot harder, I think, to find them for the younger ages. So I'm going to mention Samantha Otterville. She has um, a series called Little Senses. And, you know, it has you know, a lot to do with sensory issues with autism, but it's told, you know, these these books are um, especially for, I would say, preschool audience and, um, and maybe like early elementary. And also Sally Pla, who's also a middle grade author, but she wrote Benji, The Bad Day and Me. And this book is actually told um, we have the autistic kid is a sibling of the so the, the main perspective is a sibling who has an autistic brother. And I think what's interesting about this, we didn't really cover this earlier, um, but a lot of times when we're, when I'm reading um, literature that has, you know, autistic characters, there's also this stereotype that the, um, the autistic person is somehow a burden to the family. And so I always recommend Sally Plaza's picture book because it, it's written by an autistic person who certainly does not have that um, that negative uh, 
stereotype. It does not, you know, reinforce that that very, I think, um, negative message that that um, kids could get from reading other books that show the autistic person as someone who is, um, like I said, a burden to the family. And um, I think Own Voices books are a good way to not only encourage, um, you know, you're supporting authentic voices, but also, you know, making sure that the message, especially if you're not an autistic person and you're choosing books to, you know, maybe gift to an autistic child, these authentic voices, um, I really do feel that autistic people are the experts and we do need the medical professionals and we need their, you know, their, the authentic voices um, will help us understand and accept autism. I read a lot of essays and write them as well um, from my perspective. But when I got diagnosed, a lot of the um, autistic voices that I had been reading in memoirs and there's John Elder Robinson's Look Me in the Eye. It was a memoir that I read. And even though, you know, it was a um, male author who wrote it, I d- identified with a lot of that. And I had already, you know, come to the conclusion that I was autistic. When I read that book, it really confirmed for me what I already knew. And it was interesting because his life and the experiences he talks about in those, that book is so different than my own. But it was almost like the subtle little nuances, the tiny little behaviors that earlier I was mentioning how you really can't pinpoint because they're like these tiny little nuances. It's it's really something that I feel like if I'm reading a book, if it's written by an autistic person, I just know and I can't put my finger on it. So I really encourage any listeners to look into own voices, autistic, you know, picture books. Think about your books as something where, you know, you want to make sure that you're you're getting um, you know, an authentic perspective. And so I think that really comes from reading own voices. Yeah, we definitely recommend Own Voices books in general and those being books by the people who the books are about, right? So if you're, for example, right, if I wrote a book about a trans character, it would be an Own Voices book because I'm trans. And it's, it's actually really interesting that you were saying, like, you can tell, right, when a book is Own Voices, even if it's not explicitly said, because I, I was actually just guested on a podcast called Is It Transphobic? And we, where I, I brought them a bunch of um, my favorite kids' books about gender and things like that. And there was one book in particular that we were both like, you can tell that this author is a trans person just because of those little, it's like those little things, right? Um, and I think that it really you know, can someone who's not of an experience write a book about it? Yes, it's been done before. (laughs) Uh, Physically, it can be done. But there's just something that's missing, I feel like. Um, It's just not the same thing as when you're writing about your own experience. It's funny, I actually have one of the Little Senses books in front of me right now, because we're going to be talking about it on our episode about our uh, favorite books about talking to kids about autism. But it's a, it's a really good series. Rose, do you have any resources? It's a publishing company called Jessica Kingsley Publishers. Mm-hmm. And they they publish just like, I think, some of my favorite own voices books. They have a, a real, um, I've never seen quite such a prolific and extensive catalog of books by, for, and about autistic people one book in particular that's a particular classic is the freaks geeks and asperger syndrome um by luke jackson which is a written by an autistic teenage boy and illustrated by him as no it's not illustrated by him it's illustrated by his sisters um but i think that came out in the 90s and we had it at home um and i remember reading it and being like wow this is 
this is so like me but I'm a girl so I can't have autism so it's not really about <laughs> me but you know I, and I I still resonate with it to this day it's a fantastic book and Aspergirls by these are I've just realized both these books I'm recommending have the the Aspie word in them but they were quite old I suppose um the Aspergirls by Rudy Simone um is the book that made me take myself seriously in thinking that I might be mm. autistic myself and it's it's a really good book it sort of she talks about how autism is experienced by women in particular and mm. um it's it's really interesting and I think some of it is probably a little bit outdated now but she's written lots of new books um as well check those check those out check out Jessica Kingsley Publishers yeah, they're great. We talk about Jessica Kingsley a lot. They have a lot of really, really great books uh, about all different kinds of things. They have a lot about like um, gender and sexuality. Um, they have uh, a lot, like you said, about autism and just neurodivergence in general. Just a lot of really great books for all ages. Um, so definitely uh, check them out. We uh, we talk about them all the time. I love Jessica Kingsley. Before we go, I'm just curious if you have any personal projects. I'd love to hear about your own uh, books. Uh, anything else that you want to plug and also where can people find you on the internet if you want to be found so my debut picture book is called two sticky sensory issues with autism so it kind of highlights a lot of the things that we talked about today as far as sensory issues go and um, I like to think of it as it's not so much a book about autism as a book about a girl who happens to be autistic and mm-hmm. it's, it's very much based on my own and my daughter's experiences. So it is fiction in that, you know, the events of the story are not, you know, they're made up. Like it follows a second grader who um, is having a slime experiment at school. And it shows her in the beginning with interacting with her family, having breakfast, eating pancakes and getting sticky syrup on her hands. And it's one of her sensory issues. She has trouble with sticky things. She's worried about getting sticky hands with the slime experiment, and um, she gets some accommodations at school, and she she has a stress ball that she takes to school. There's just like a lot of ways in which it shows how she's able to use different techniques like breathing um, techniques to help her get through her day at school. And it's at the same time, it's a STEM book because it um, has a lot about the science of slime. So it, it has a lot of ways in which um, you're following the experiment along with my main character, Holly. And so um, I think one thing to think about, too, when we talk about, you know, books that are, you know, designed to we want to picture books and, you know, books for younger readers. We want to um, we want to make it so that they're learning about autism. They're learning about, in this case, STEM or whatever else they're learning about. But they don't feel like they're learning about something. Yeah. It's really and that's a story. Them into learning a little bit. And um, where I can be found, um, I have a website, jenmalia.com. My last name's M-A-L-I-A. And um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at jenmaliabooks. I've got two picture books. They're called Me and My Sister and Talking is Not My Thing. And both these books have the same two protagonists who are brother and sister and The sister is a nonverbal autistic person, although they are, they look like sort of cat, yellow cat dog creatures. I I just prefer drawing creatures to people for some reason. (laughs) And they're just really books about their sort of adventures in the day that they have. 
me and my sister is from the perspective of the sibling of the brother and how he and his sister how, what their relationship is like and it, it's it's a book that I tried to focus more on relationships mm. than the symptoms or products of whatever yeah. it is that's going on in this family and then talking is not my thing is from the quite a challenge from the perspective of <laughs> the nonverbal autistic sister and this book is about her and she takes us through like her kind of late afternoon evening and how she communicates in a different way how she communicates with her family and with her brother without using her voice and um yeah they were both super fun to write um and I think in the US they're both published by Erdman's I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Erdman's publisher? Yeah. So that's where they could be found. And I have a website. It is roserobbins.co.uk. And uh, it's Robbins with a double B. Yeah. And I'm also on Instagram, which is at Rose Robbins Illustration. First of all, I, uh, I just want to give a little shout out because I have I have read all three of, of y'all's books and they're wonderful. So definitely check them out. And also, it's funny, it didn't occur to me until we were having this conversation that um, all of the, well, not all of the characters, obviously, but the characters um, who have autism in y'all's books are all female, which is awesome to have that representation like we were just talking about. So that's really cool. So definitely um, Seth approved. Check them out. (laughs) Thank you both so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. And remember, stay rad. Hello, my name is Stefan and I am the host of a show called Some Good Friends and it's a podcast and it will make you laugh and we talk to some of my good friends and they're crazy and hilarious and wacky and you're going to love them just as much as I do. Currently, while I'm recording this, I forgot to mute all my other takes so I'm hearing myself say different words in my ears. The show comes out every Monday weekly. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.